0: It was really, uh, really overwhelming, really.
1: We probably all have memories that we cherish and never want to forget. Our first day at school, our wedding day, the first car. Des Mullen, though, has a memory from 50 years ago that he wishes, maybe, he could forget.
0: I remember going through a big, long uh, tent, you know. Young lads, teenagers, about 16 years old, were just a blank staring and they were actually dying. In
1: 1968, Des Mullen was working as a journalist for the Evening Herald. He was reporting from inside a new African country that had just declared independence from Nigeria and was being attacked by Nigeria and torn apart in a horrible war. And something in particular was horrific about this war. The fact that the main weapon used by Nigeria was food. Nigeria cut off the food supply into this new country, which had a population of around 13 million. And as well as being shot at and bombed, people were being deliberately starved to death. Dez says he remembers seeing thousands of people on the move, routed by bombs and shootings and searching for something to eat. But the most heartbreaking images, he says, were of stick-thin children with swollen bellies, some dying, others already dead.
0: And to bring out the poor little bodies and bury them straight away, you know, because of the climate and all the rest of it, just wrapped in whatever. But it was, it was har- horrific.
2: God Almighty. It was terrible.
1: The country that Des was reporting from was Biafra, which was mainly populated by the Igbo people. And the Irish people got to know this country through the medium of television, via documentaries like Night Flight to Uli, which was shown on RTE in the late 1960s.
3: On the 30th of May 1967, the independence of the Republic of Biafra was declared. I won't say that a new country was added to the map, since few mapmakers thought it worth their while bothering with the country, which seemed certainly doomed to early annihilation.
1: For the first time since their own famine, Irish people were able to see what starvation looked like.
0: Day
3: after day in Biafra, the unending search for food goes on. The village restaurants still display their grandiose names to the passers-by, but their prices have soared, and their menus have shrunk almost to vanishing point. There's nothing to drink except palm wine, nothing to eat except some fruit and vegetables. And even to buy these, you need a very well-filled purse.
1: Missionaries like Father Dermot Doran witnessed the horrible violence which became part of daily life. One particular
0: night, up to 250, I think, they had their trots slit or there were a bullet
1: put in their brain. When you listen to these stories today, they feel somehow familiar. Shocking, absolutely, but nonetheless familiar in a hyper-connected world. But imagine how these descriptions must have sounded to Irish people in the 1960s. A world with no internet, no online petitions against atrocities, no massive aid organisations to step in and try to help. You might have wondered, what exactly can you do to help starving people in a country you mightn't even be able to find on a map? You might do what John and Kay O'Lachlan Kennedy did.
3: I have a very vivid imagination and
1: I could see what was, was going on. In 1968, they got together with a small group of people to see what they could do to help. And what they did manage surprised even themselves. During the
3: course of the war, which went on for another two years, we raised approximately three and a half million pounds which is the equivalent of between 60 and 70 million euro in today's terms.
1: Together with other people who we'll hear about later, John and Kay helped to save the lives of millions of people in Biafra. And while the story of Biafra is a short one, As an independent country, it only existed for three years. The tale of how Irish people came together to help the Biafrans is nothing short of amazing. It's a story about ordinary people doing extraordinary things, about missionaries dodging bombs to smuggle food and penicillin into Biafra.
0: And it's when I began to feel the plane shaking, rocking, that was when I began to think, if I've done anything terrible,
1: (laughs) forgive me. It's about press censorship, and the ways people managed to get the real story out. We had better communications than the newswires. It's about how Irish people were moved to help save the lives of people they'd never met, and even developed a kinship with a country most would never visit. It's the story you're about to hear. This is SOS, How Ireland Helped a Nation. Episode one, a war and a press conference.
3: Do you regard this as actually as a civil war, or do you regard it as a, a war of one independent state against another?
2: Well, for us, we don't call it a civil war. For Biafranc, it's a war of independence. Because we feel that living with the others, we couldn't possibly live with them, together with them. We want them to stay on their own. We don't want to do them any harm. And if they leave us alone, that is all we want.
1: As we in Ireland know from our own history, the issues behind any war, be it a civil war or a war of independence, are usually complex. Biafra is no exception. And to understand how Biafra got to this point in its history, we should take a brief look at its relationship with Nigeria, the country it wanted to break away from. By 1900, much of Africa had been colonized by European powers. Britain had a big stake in the western part of the continent. And in the early 20th century, it decided to glue together huge areas of western Africa. Areas that were home to 60 million people who spoke 300 different languages and hailed from hundreds of different cultures. They called this area Nigeria. There were three main cultural groups though the Muslim Hausa people who lived in the north, the Yoruba people in the southwest, and the mostly Christian Igbo people in eastern Nigeria, the area that would later become known as Biafra. As we all know, it's not always easy for people from different ideologies and cultures to get on, and Nigeria was no different. And when Nigeria became independent from Britain in 1960, things didn't get any easier. There was a lot of what's often referred to as tension.
2: Uh, the tensions were provoked by the fact that the Igbos were more educated.
1: Mary Humphreys was a teacher in eastern Nigeria in the 1960s, before the war started.
2: Now, Nigeria was really potentially quite a wealthy country. very fertile, the eastern area very fertile. And the Nigerian, the Igbo tribe, were very interested in education.
1: As she explains it, back then, a lot of Igbo people were living in the then capital of Nigeria, Lagos. These were people whose grandparents and great-grandparents had moved to Lagos and they were working in banks as lawyers, held positions in the civil service and even in the army.
2: And this was disliked by the northerners.
1: These tensions led to outright violence. In January 1966, A group of Igbo army officers killed 30 political figures, including the then Prime Minister. And six months later, from June to October 1966, Igbo people in the north were massacred in their thousands.
2: Many parents, fathers of my children had to flee out.
0: Now, some of those Easterners, well, had to go back to the East. That's where they came from originally. Like, I'm talking now about maybe 100 years before that.
1: Father Dermot Dorn was a Holy Ghost priest, as the Spiritans used to be known, in eastern Nigeria at this time, in 1966. I'd say the
0: majority had never been in the East. It'd be like if a war starts in America or something and the, all these Irish Americans decide to come back to Ireland, most of them never were in Ireland, wouldn't even know where their, what part their ancestors came from. And suddenly they started looking for shelter and for food and for cause they had nothing. They had, barely had the clothes on their back.
1: More than one and a half million Igbo's dropped everything and ran for their lives to eastern Nigeria. So thousands and thousands came. Many of them had seen horrible violence. Some had been hacked by machetes and were wounded and bleeding while they travelled. Finally, On the 30th of May 1967, the Igbo governor of the Eastern region, Colonel Ojuku, made an announcement on the radio. The region, he said, was declaring independence from Nigeria and would henceforth be known as Biafra.
2: I heard his voice, beautiful Oxford accent. He had been educated in England. A very wealthy family, the Ojukus. Beautiful voice, beautiful mellow voice came over the radio, saying he'd succeeded.
1: Nigeria didn't necessarily want them gone, though. For one thing, Biafra had oil reserves, which were important for the Nigerian economy. Shortly after this announcement, Nigerian troops advanced towards Biafra. And the war was on. According to eyewitnesses, some people in Biafra felt relief when Colonel Ojuku made that announcement of independence, but then they felt panic.
0: The Nigerians established their presence by putting roadblocks, troops, soldiers, driving around with their guns and all that.
1: Many people in small towns and villages had to run for their lives from the Nigerian army.
0: I remember the gunshots, the bullets hitting the frontage of our house.
1: Philip Suzoma was just six when the war reached his community. He remembers hiding in the trenches that people dug at the back of their houses.
0: When it intensified, at a point it intensified, we have to run.
3: We have to run from our village and go further
1: down
0: into the hinterland.
1: Philip says he remembers being carried across a river on his sister's back.
0: You hear the noise of the the flow of the river, you know, the stream, you know, a lot of people actually were
3: drowned in that.
1: Phillips was just one of thousands of people who were on the move through Biafra. At first, they were trying to avoid the Nigerian army. Later on, they were trying to avoid dying of hunger. In 1967, the federal military government of Nigeria declared starvation was a legitimate weapon of war and they were getting ready to use it. No food was allowed into Biafra. One of the problems
0: in the eastern region was some of the best food growing areas were outside the eastern region. Holy Ghost missionary Dermot again. The hunger really began in September, October. That was the first signs of children, babies especially. There was no market, and there was nothing, you know, life was not like the way it used to be.
1: But while people inside Biafra were watching mothers and babies starve to death, the wider world had no idea what was happening. The Nigerian government, backed by the British, controlled all media messages that came out of the country.
0: The BBC had a journalist down there called Freddie Forsyth, maybe you've heard of him, Freddie was working with the BBC at that time and he, had got, he was in Nigeria and he managed to get into Biafra and find out what, uh, what was really going on. He started broadcasting stuff. But then, uh, after a short while, he noticed some of his broadcasts weren't being broadcast. And worse still, he was being censored.
1: But there was one person who did know what was going on. An Irish priest, Father Raymond Kennedy. My brother Raymond was a Holy Ghost father. This is John O'Loughlin Kennedy. He had been 14 years
3: as a missionary in the area and he was out in California doing a course when the war broke out and the blockade was put in place so he couldn't get back.
1: Raymond Kennedy might easily have decided that's that, I can't get back to Biafra so I'll sit it out in sunny California. But he didn't. Raymond was fiercely loyal to his fellow priests and parishioners in Biafra, so he hatched a daring plan. He found out that the fledgling Biafran government had set up an office in Lisbon, and he also found a mercenary pilot.
3: Who was flying the arms in to Biafra,
1: into a jungle airstrip at night time, under cover of darkness. The pilot agreed to take Raymond to Biafra. in December of 1967, Raymond Kennedy hopped into a small plane in Lisbon, strapped himself into a seat on top of an ammunition box and flew to Biafra.
0: He came out with the horror stories of all the
1: hunger and starvation and pictures of kids. He saw children with swollen bellies and matchstick limbs children with the classic symptoms of protein deficiency that would become infamously associated with Biafra. Raymond stayed for a couple of weeks, then returned to Ireland and went straight to his brother John and John's wife Kay. John and Kay were so horrified by Raymond's pictures and stories that they decided to tell people about it. Fully convinced the world would also be shocked enough to help Biafra, they organised a press conference in the Shelburne Hotel however
3: yeah, that was a flop of a press conference <laughs> and that was on the 12th of december in 67. on monday morning i had called the press conference at 11 o'clock and at 12 o'clock raymond got a phone call to say that he wasn't to have the press conference <laughs> having agreed to that raymond should tell the world what was going on in biafra raymond's provincial in the holy ghost fathers changed his mind over the weekend so it was handled without the Prince. The following day there was nothing in the press except a four lines with a very bland heading. As far as we can guess, somebody from church or state had rung up and told the newspapers that Irish missionaries would be murdered in their beds if they mentioned the war in Nigeria.
0: But it went even further than that. The Irish government wasn't over-enthusiastic about any big thing like this. Because Guinness had opened a brewery in Lagos, the biggest brewery outside of the North Wall. And of course, the Irish government would have been linked in to. They didn't want to hear bad things about Nigeria. So there was a negative or a toned down, not maybe negative, but a toned down attitude in official
1: uh, circles. This is a critical point in the story of Biafra and of Ireland's relationship with that country. Raymond Kennedy might have decided that there was too much stacked against them and that they should forget about Biafra. Instead, though, Raymond did two things. First, he arranged to fly a dozen journalists into Biafra on a clandestine flight. He wanted to counter the fake news being spread by the Nigerians and the British. By early 1968, therefore, the world started to hear about Biafra. The second thing he did was to fly in some supplies. When you hear that phrase, fly in some supplies, it might sound like an easy task, almost like booking a flight to Paris. But getting anything into Biafra was incredibly dangerous. As well as placing a physical blockade around Biafra, Nigeria had banned all flights into that country, and any aircraft outside the official schedule was liable to be shot at. Secondly, the new Biafran government was keeping an eye out for spies. Anyone trying to get into Biafra was liable to be treated with suspicion, or even worse. So, organising that flight into Biafra was anything but easy. And the man who helped make that happen was Father Dermot Dorn.
0: I was in New York. Raymond's stories were horrifying
1: in a way, and
0: uh, it certainly galvanised me.
1: Raymond and Dermot talked about what his parishioners inside Biafra needed. They needed penicillin and, something unusual, 20 million Eucharistic hosts. To which Dermot responded,
0: What? Jesus, what are you talking about?
1: The Igbo people were mostly Christian, and in Biafra there was no flour to make communion wafers for the Christmas masses. So after his initial shock, Dermot set to work.
0: Raymond then was satisfied I was going to knock on a few doors around New York, and he headed on then to California.
1: Dermot called in a lot of favours in New York, and within a couple of days he gathered together 100,000 Eucharistic hosts and $120,000 worth of penicillin. All he had to do now was get that into Biafra. The way into Biafra was, of course, the same way Raymond had entered via an undercover flight out of Lisbon in Portugal. And when you listen to the story of how they did this, the entire operation sounds like something you'd read in a 1950s spy thriller, where the heroes are a small group of Irish missionary priests. As Raymond had found out earlier, the Biafran government had set up a secret outpost in Portugal, and they were running the flights out of Lisbon, often carrying weapons for the Biafran rebels. Their secret weapon was an ex-World War II pilot who worked as a mercenary in various African countries.
0: This particular guy, his name was Hank Wharton. He was an American Jew. But he was a bit of a, well, shady, he'd be too much If too strong a word, it might be the exact proper word. Portugal, they knew that these planes came and went from the airport. They were never registered, and it always went in the middle of the night, when there was nobody around, or when there was very little traffic there. And it also went from the other end of the airport. It didn't come up in the park in front of the the terminal buildings or anything like that.
1: But before getting anywhere near the plane, Dermot had to report to the secret Biafran office in Lisbon, if he could find it.
0: Now, and I literally had to walk around a whole number of blocks of streets. Finally, he found the place. Now, I wasn't dressed as a priest, and there I had to um, throw myself at their mercy, more or less, because I didn't know anything. Their worst fear at the time was being, found out about the Nigerians, as to what, where they were operating out of.
1: And then, Dermot had to convince the Biafran officials he wasn't a British or Nigerian spy. And these fears were not exactly unfounded. Dermot recalls a disturbing event that happened later.
0: I left a room of one of the pilots uh, in the hotel one afternoon.
1: Dermot was showing the pilot a few locations on the map of Biafra.
0: But then I left his room and uh, it was about 20 minutes or half an hour or so We get exactly. There was an explosion in the room. Now he was very badly hurt but um, everybody involved maintained it was uh, saw the British and that came from British journalists.
1: Back in the Lisbon office of the Biafran government, meanwhile, it was Dermot's Irish accent and his detailed geographical knowledge of his parish in Biafra that convinced the officials he wasn't a spy. So pretty soon, Dermot was introduced to Hank Wharton's band of pilots.
0: We met them in the bar of the Tivoli Hotel. There were four of them, what I would call buccaneer types, People who had no trouble taking risks and doing stuff that might normally be done. But they wouldn't be flying these kind of planes if they weren't. As I discovered, even the plane, the markings on the plane were all changed and um, in any other country the whole thing would have been locked up straight away, the government would have shut it down, the airport authority wouldn't have, somebody in the airport would have noticed that there's something fishy about this.
1: Even though those fishy activities were tolerated, Dermot somehow had to prove he was a legitimate part of the aircraft crew. So he was registered as the aircraft engineer.
0: But I joked to find myself, I said, no, I want to be the radio officer. I don't want to be the engineer.
1: (laughs) Before long, the mission was underway. And in true 1950s spy thriller fashion, an anonymous white van picked up Dermot in the middle of the night and drove to a secluded spot at the very end of the runway at Lisbon Airport. I said, "Joking, are we driving to be after vehicle?" You know, like <laughs> to Dermot's relief, the plane soon took off with him and his precious cargo and disappeared into the night sky. As it turns out. Getting the plane out of Lisbon was the easy part. The plane flew for 17 hours towards Port Harcourt on the southern coast of Biafra. They stopped to refuel in Guinea-Bissau, which itself was in the middle of a civil war. The passengers could see the fighting from the air.
0: You could see the shooting and the bombs and the whole lot going on. The American guy, the captain, He was actually a former lieutenant colonel in the US Air Force in World War II. He could tell you from the flash of what kind of bombs or what kind of bullets or what kind of rockets or mortars they were using. But this was nothing, this was only child's play compared
1: to what we met later on going into Biafra. After refueling, the plane continued to Port Harcourt. Again, they left in the middle of the night. This was to avoid being picked up on the radar of the Nigerian ships that were patrolling the Biafran coast. The plane was ducking and diving to avoid the ship's radars.
0: And I said, is it going to be get, get any uh, rougher, you know? He uh, said, Padre, you start swinging that beads of yours. <laughs> that was a, start swinging that beads of yours. You can say your, your rosaries. <laughs> and I did, I remember thinking, oh my God, this is it.
1: all on that journey was
0: it i i wasn't completely comfortable i mean (laughs) no was i scared i was supposed i I was so determined or so hoping to get that we'd make it
1: but they came through it and they landed almost under cover of darkness they turned off the lights shortly after
0: we we had landed, and they actually only put them on beforehand.
1: Despite the fact that the flight was a hair-raising one, Dermot Dorn flew into Port Harcourt from Lisbon many more times, until the airport was taken over by the Nigerian army. After this, humanitarian groups found alternative routes into the country, routes that were even more dangerous than Dermot's first flight into Biafra.
0: Now, it was a dangerous operation because, you know, the, there were nights when the bombs did drop and people got killed and, and uh, planes crashed. Somebody said to me once, uh, what about your poor mother at home now? She's listening to the radio then she hears all this stuff going on and what have you. I said she never really worried too much. I said, why? Because she knew I wasn't there. What do you mean? Well, I had friends in San Francisco and in New York and in... New Orleans and Los Angeles, wherever. And they'd be sending cards that I had signed. (laughs) They'd be mailing them to her.
2: (laughs) Had
1: you been failing your poor mother? (laughs)
2: Well,
0: I I thought I was, but Mother always knew she said, that guy, you know, he expects me to believe that he was in Seattle last week and now he's down in in New Orleans. And... uh, one morning somebody came bang, bang, bang in the door. Marianne, turn on the radio, turn on the radio. And here she hears me talking to somebody. And I'm down in Biafra. And she was only after getting this thing from Los Angeles the day before. <laughs> and uh, she said, oh my God, that fella.
1: He
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tried to fool her and you couldn't.
1: Dermot Dorn's crazily dangerous first flight into Biafra eventually became part of some of the most groundbreaking humanitarian airlifts at the time. The airlifts were part of an international action that would save millions of lives in Biafra and that would see Irish priests like Dermot becoming logistical experts, airline directors and more. It's almost like you were a people smuggler. <laughs> yeah, it was everything. But those airlifts needed supplies. And in the next episode, we'll hear about two people in Ireland who mobilised an entire nation to help save Biafran lives.
3: Hopelessness stops people from doing things. If there's a slim possibility that we might pull it off, then people would put the shoulders to the wheel.
1: We'll also find out how Ireland fell in love with Biafra, perhaps because their story felt so familiar. The story of a young nation gathering behind a brave new leader, Colonel Ujuku, and taking its first faltering steps towards independence.
3: The Nigerians appear not to know that by unleashing a war of aggression, they have aroused a whole people against them. Biafra has come to stay and the fact of our
2: independence is irreversible.
1: This podcast is a Concern Worldwide production. It was presented by Clara Hearn and produced by Colette Kinsella for Red Hair Media.